0: Full Service Radio is proudly supported and hosted by Simplecast, the easiest way for a podcast creator to publish and distribute audio on the internet. For more information, visit Simplecast.com. Full Service
1: Radio. Hey
2: everybody, it's Nikki Nellis live at the Line Hotel on Full Service Radio. It's industry night. Uh, Thank you so much for joining us during the beginning of this holiday season. It is beginning to look a lot like Christmas and Hanukkah and Kwanzaa and a lot of other things. Um, So there's lots to do in this city right now. Winter activations are heating up all over the city. There's lots of deliciousness going on here at the Line Hotel. And for those of you who've never tuned in before, let me just give a brief introduction. I am Nikki Nellis. I've been covering the D.C. food and wine scene for the last 17 years. I have a pretty comprehensive Intensive website called the listareyouanit.com. It lists every food and wine event going on in the DC metro area. So if you're interested in a wine dinner or restaurants opening or a cheese tasting or a chocolate tasting or festivals or activations happening around the city, it is your one-stop shop to get everything you need. And, of course, it's free. You can also hear me every Sunday live on Foodie and the Beast. We just celebrated our 11-year anniversary. Uh, that's where my de- uh, my husband, David, and I, he is clearly the beast. I am the foodie, uh, do a food and wine variety show uh, where we talk to- from to people from all over the world about what's happening in the food, wine, and spirit scene. And lastly, you can also hear me on WTOP Radio locally doing trend reports and roundups of all the fun stuff happening around the D.C. area. And one other thing before we get into the show you can also follow me on social media an absolute evil necessary at nycci today on facebook and insta stories my uh trusty sidekick annie will be posting uh different videos and photos throughout uh the show so you can get a chance to see what's going on here in studio and today the studio already looks pretty fabulous and uh smells pretty delicious because i had have, um, fabulous hunks of cheese sitting in front of me. So Jill Erber has been in studio before. Uh, she came in with her husband, Jeff, but Jeff wasn't on air. Was he on air last time or was it just he's you and not I? On right, air. he's not allowed on air. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that. Mm-hmm. I like where you're going with yeah. that. Um, so Jill Erber came in before and she is one of the very few female entrepreneurs in this city that is really doing it all. She created her own uh, business model of a cheese store that incorporates wine and gifts and a restaurant. And she doesn't just have one, she has multiple. And she just reopened her um, newest one uh, in um, Shirlington Village. And it is glorious and gorgeous. And she and I were talking about all these interesting artisans that are now in the D.C. metro area. And we were talking about cheese makers in the area and chocolate makers in the area and what they're adding to the scene and what it's like to be in the D.C. artisan scene and being able to bring your product to market. So she has brought together a cast of characters for me. Um, and I'm so excited because this is what I love to talk about. And uh, then she was like, I mean, we can't have chocolate and cheese and um, not have wine. <laughs> so um, we have wine as well. So let me introduce everybody who's in studio with us today. So we have Gail Hobbs-Page. She is the owner and head cheesemaker of Caramont Farms. And she brought in the gorgeous cheese, obviously. Rob Kingsbury is in studio. He is a chocolatier and the founder of Kingsbury Chocolates. And he has a great story. And Jason Whiteside, he is with Winebow. He is uh, a level four WSUT, which is pretty fancy schmancy. And he came in. Jason, I'm just going to throw it to you quickly because I know you came in with some bubbles. And I believe we should always start everything with bubbles. I I would start my morning with bubbles every day if I could. Tell me what you brought in.
0: I brought in a basic Laurent Perrier La Cuvée champagne. Mm -hmm. It's a Grandmark champagne. uh, So it's a which is really a well-known one of the original houses in champagne. And I'm pretty sure this is the reason why I was invited to bring the bubbles tonight. Yes. So, nice uh, so I think this is how we'll start it off. That's okay, okay great. with everybody. while you
2: pop that, I am going to get in it to it with Jill. So, Jill, when you created the concept for Cheese Teak, it initially was just a a cheese market. Yes. So, how did you decide then how you were going to bring cheeses to the table? What was it that you what was it that you weren't seeing out there? that you wanted to do?
3: When we first opened, as you already pointed out, we were first and foremost, cheese. We didn't even actually carry wine when we first opened um, a little over 15 years ago. And my goal when opening was to be, in a sense, a representative of all of the amazing cheesemakers that were out there that at that point, um, you know, 15, 16, 17 years ago, were really, really under or unrepresented completely, mm-hmm. um, especially local artisans who really had trouble getting exposure to the public. Um, because if you're a cheesemaker, you're a very, very busy person and you're right. working. It's very demanding. It's very uh, physically presence demanding. And so you aren't able to get out there and show your wares. You aren't able to get out there to market um, and to sell everything and to meet the public because you're making your cheese. You're doing your work and you're following your passion. And uh, so unfortunately, I felt at least that there were so many wonderful makers out there that were stuck on the farm, so to speak. And so their products weren't being allowed to shine unless they were lucky enough to be able to represent themselves at farmer's markets and things like that. Uh, And not everybody had access to those Use either. So, the initial idea was, hey, I want to create this place where guests can come and have this wonderful educational experience. They can learn about cheese without it being this sort of daunting, foofy thing, mm-hmm. um, and have a very approachable, fun learning experience. But at the same time, have a venue where uh, smaller makers and smaller uh, producers had um, had a built-in audience in mm-hmm. a sense and got to show their show off their stuff. But
2: how did you go about? Because if they're not out there, how do you go and find them? So is it a who you know, what you know, like is it just tapping into your network as you as you began your business? Were you able to like say to Cheesemaker A, who else do you know? Exactly. Yes. So, so in the beginning,
3: it was very much word of mouth. So, um, in the years since then, we've really seen um, distributors, large and small, uh, having better representation for even these smaller producers. So, it's come a long way. But, but do you think that has to do
2: with um, the internet, social media, stuff like
3: that? I think it has to do with people becoming more enlightened consumers Mm -hmm. um, and more interested in um, in enjoying these unique products so uh, again 20 years ago in this area when I said I was opening a cheese shop
2: people ha- did a double take and they were like what a whole shop just for cheese who would eat so I think and you, but what's so amazing about that and I've heard you say that before yeah. is that when I was younger like in the 70s in New Jersey we went to a cheese shop yep. there
3: wasn't just one of
2: them there were nope. several of them and you had your like like of choice were, it was right. like
3: your family's cheese shop that they preferred exactly for sure. and there
2: was bakeries. I mean, there were things that Mm -hmm. people went to. We went to cheese shops. Like, Mm -hmm. that wasn't abnormal. It wasn't until I'm, probably till I moved to Boston where I was like, there's no cheese shops. Like, there was no place just to get cheese.
3: Right. If you were lucky enough to be from Manhattan or from New Jersey, right. maybe from Chicago, maybe from San Francisco. I feel like I have you, to have some cheese while I'm talking Yeah, yeah just jump That was very very slick, by <laughs> the way. Ahead. Just leaned in there. Uh-huh. Um, you were lucky enough to be mm-hmm. exposed to that, but so many other people, especially in the D.C. area, it was really limited. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was really, in the beginning, it was really reaching out to farms directly. Farms that people are more used to seeing now, for instance, Caramont or Meadow Creek, mm-hmm. um, who were just teeny tiny producers, and they used to just ship their stuff to us in boxes and sometimes it would make it and sometimes it wouldn't and uh, sometimes it would make it and it would not be at all palatable um, anymore. And, And so it was all of those growing pains that everyone was going through. Until people started to taste this stuff and say, wow, even in local areas here in Virginia, in Maryland, in D.C., um, we have our own really unique terroir. We have our own really unique environment um, that is giving birth to all these amazing products. And we want to be part of that. We want to support that. And then it was the demand that kept it going. So it was the customers telling us what they wanted.
2: But there has been a dramatic shift. And we can get to it a little later. But Mm -hmm. there has been a dramatic shift. In local perspective, right? So like 100%. 15 years ago when you were starting, people were big on like organic was a big buzzword, <clears> right? <throat> mm-hmm. And then I feel like maybe 10 years ago, people were like, no, it's not about being organic. It's about being local. Like right. how far has it gone? What are mm-hmm. people doing? And mm-hmm. then I do kind of believe a little bit with the recession that people were like looking in their own backyards and being like, what can I do here? What yeah. can I make? What can I do that I can bring to market? Right. And, and the there was cons- this like in- like a big insurgence. There was, and
3: I think the concept of knowing the maker was something that exploded about 10 years ago. Mm-hmm. It was this desire to meet the farmer, to meet the cheesemaker, to meet the chocolatier. They didn't just want to eat these products. They wanted to see them in store. They wanted to uh, watch them make cheese. And, and at the same time, as social media started exploding, right. they were able to, they felt like they knew these people, like, oh, I feel like people say that to me. Although I feel like I know you because I watch well, all you of do your videos. videos. Right. Um, but but it, it created this very special bond between people who were making these products who who until then were kind of behind the scenes working right Uh um it made people feel like they knew them and loved them and wanted to support them and buy their products frankly so that they would be successful um and stay around so i think it was it really went hand in hand the sense of of um being able to know these people um and want to support them at the same time and feeling like you could
2: well i want to bring in gail at this point Whose cheese is really delicious? You. <laughs> it was so yummy. Um, Gail, tell us a little bit about your background because you were a chef.
4: I was. I was. Um, I had a you know a very successful, wonderful career um, as a chef um, for over twenty some years. Uh, mm-hmm. I cooked with Ben and Karen Barker at um, Magnolia Grill in Durham, right. North Carolina, and uh, I cooked with um, a fairly iconic african-american chef named edna lewis Mm -hmm. um and uh i grew up on a farm so i I was no stranger to the field to fork movement i mean it wasn't a movement for us it was the way we lived and Mm -hmm. the way we the way we cooked and um but i approached cheese as a chef and um and not as a farmer Mm -hmm. Uh, i knew the cheeses that i wanted to make uh in a sensory fashion from the food that
2: i had cooked well wait let's back up a little bit how long ago was that
4: was uh Ooh, in the late 80s okay. was when I started my, um, I, uh, you know, I, uh, I lived in Chapel Hill for after I graduated. I went to school there, um, started cooking, never looked back. I mm-hmm. loved it. It was for me. I love food. And, and I, growing up on a farm, I, I had a very special relationship with the people who grew it and the people who made it. And it was not a strange thing for me to think that, hey, I can make cheese if I can cook if I can, you know, if I can right. make pate, I can make cheese. So um, I grew up with goats. Um, mm-hmm. I grew up um, with. Um, um, with animals all around me, good food all around me, homemade, handmade, artisan food. We call it artisan now. You know, back then it was just. Is uh, <laughs> what so we did? It was my grandma canning? Right. <laughs> um, but uh, I started this project in 2007, uh-huh. um, and I got to tell you, I mean, I was listening to to what you're saying, I, it, 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 it was a romantic notion to to try to start a um, a cheese making. Uh, Business in a state that's not a dairy state, right? Um, like Vermont. We were speaking earlier about uh, the support of, of the cheese industry, um, um, and we started in two
2: thousand seven. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, for people but, who don't know where you're, are you where you're from? We're
4: just out of Charlottesville, right. okay. Caramont. But uh-huh. I grew up in North Carolina, right. that's why it's called Caramont. Mm-hmm. Um But um, but yeah, the, um, the that was my background, and mm-hmm. so I had to sort of, once I started making cheese, and I started loving the process of, of making, seeing this, this milk turn into, I mean, it all starts as goat milk, it all right. starts as cow milk, it all starts as sheep milk, it all starts as grapes, you know, here we are. It's kind of seeing this process um, become a value-added thing. I thought, mm-hmm. well, hey, maybe I can do this. But that's when I realized that I was not in any way ready to become a serious cheesemaker. So um, I put on my big girl boots and I went up to Vermont. I did some classes um, up at the University of Vermont. Um, I traveled a bit and um, done some cheesemaking work on farms mm-hmm. in Europe. Um, and, you know, that's kind of how we got to here. Mm-hmm. Um, so,
2: So when you launched your farm... What, and based on the staging that you did, mm-hmm. what kind of cheeses were you like, this is what I want to make? Like, did you have a dream oh, cheese Oh, God, in I
4: wanted to make... Did I you want, want to make Saint? all that? I wanted to make Saint-Mar. <laughs> I wanted to make the stinky, you know, uh-huh. you know, you know, I wanted to do all of that. That's what I'm saying. Like, But uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure in 2007, you know, Virginia was ready for Virginia that. was not ready for that. And so we make what we think of, I think, um, in... What we think of goat cheese here in, the, in Virginia is our fresh chef.
2: Right. That's um, what everybody thinks goat cheese is. So I made is. it, and
4: I made a lot of it. I bet. Um, and we still make it. It's mm-hmm. still one of our best sellers. And, you know, the idea is, you know, I meet my customer halfway. I, I, I want them, to, if, if they haven't had cheese before, I want it to be the most exciting thing in the world that they've ever tasted. Mm-hmm. I want it. But if they've traveled a lot of places, and I also want them to think, hey, that's as good as I had in... You know, the Poitou or, yeah. or in the Piemonte, you know. So, so yeah. how
2: did your business evolve? How did it go from just the Fresh Chef initially to making the different mm-hmm. cheeses and getting it to market?
4: Well, I think a lot of luck. <laughs> um, <laughs> we had very good employees um, who were with us uh, who really elevated our cheese making um, to a, a higher level, mm-hmm. um, I think we are we are in Charlottesville, mm-hmm. just outside of Charlottesville, and I think living in a um, in a in a college town sort of has its perks. And mm-hmm. one of those is that um, we were able to introduce a lot of these cheeses to people who who were kind of already in the know about right. local and and had traveled a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, that that has helped us along the way we never always say you're only as good as your last make right you know and so we're always striving to produce new cheeses have healthier animals have better grass well how how big is your herd we milk 100 goats twice Uh a day from um, february until December.
2: And they're pasture-raised? They're just walking They're
4: grass-based. Okay. Um, rotational grazing. We mm-hmm. did them high-quality hay. I always say to my people that you're only... We're milk farmers, really, right. is what we are, because you're not going to make good cheese out of... And it's you know mediocre milk. You're just not going to do it. So we're always striving for milk quality, Uh for um, for the health of our animals. Um, We talk a lot about sustainability, but you know it's really true. I mean we don't we don't want to milk something until it you know you know we want to milk something for eight years and not one year. You know so um, we have evolved on many levels. Um you know as farmers it's a little different you know like the like at first we're farmers right yeah you know, and then we're cheesemakers mm-hmm. and um And then you've got to be
2: a businesswoman. And then there's that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
4: So I wear a lot of hats. You do wear a lot of hats. Yeah. How
2: hard is it to be a woman cheesemaker? Does being a woman did it did you have to break any barriers? Is um, it a classically masculine it's field? It's a classically
4: male Oreo farming in the state of Virginia. I I think I'm going, I'm not going out on a limb here. I think it's a fairly masculine uh, (laughs) world. Um, When I was building my dairy, I knew um, very little about maintenance, about, you know, you have to always say that, you know, as a farmer, you have to be a bit of a MacGyver. You have to, you know, you just can't say, oh, I want my husband to fix it, right. you know, because, like, they don't want to hear I don't that. want my husband
2: screwing light bulbs, so that would not be <laughs> happening.
4: But, yeah. but you have to learn a right. lot. You have to be, you know, especially when you're a farmstead, which means you make the cheese on your, uh, you make the cheese from the milk, from the... Uh, Goats, right. so or ca- yeah. So I mean, you know, there. It's just a, it's a, it's a crash course in just a lot of, a, a lot of, you know, logistics. Mm-hmm. And uh, it, it wasn't easy in 2007. Um, I didn't get a lot of callbacks. I you bet. Know, but uh, but you you learn your craft, and you you learn what you need to do, and you get the respect of the of the people who are. You know, taking care of you, and I—I I,
2: I like to say, care. I'm proud to say that caramon has done that. Well, it's the cheeses are fabulous. I do want to get into your relationship in a little bit, but I want to talk about Kingsbury chocolate. Hello. Hi there. Let's get that mic up to your mouth, please. So let's talk a little bit about your history. Why are you laughing? Oh,
3: just, he he, t- he just tickles me. I just okay. watching him do anything makes me happy.
2: So you're from Vermont <laughs> originally, yeah. born But and uh, you came from a maple sugar farm. Grandparents. So my grandfather
1: had a maple sugar farm, mm-hmm. yeah, and my grandmother had a uh, great a little cafe catering business. Mm-hmm. So. I grew up around a lot of food, and I spent a lot of time with my grandparents growing up. That's so nice. um, No, it was very nice. In fact, you know, it's the reason I actually um, decided after some corporate years to get into chocolate was because I wanted to rewind Mm -hmm. my life and kind of bring back the positive memories of it. And I felt um, chocolate and family and food was a big part of that. Um, When I was a little kid, my grandparents um were both from originally new hampshire mm-hmm. so and they both had properties in new hampshire so we would drive all oh, that big giant distance across the river from vermont <laughs> to new hampshire and um stop in a little town where there was a brand new little chocolate shop that was putting out really really beautiful high-end chocolates mm-hmm. um, called burdick's which is my favorite chocolate shop and um you know, after going to college and, and working and sort of circling back around, um, those were good memories. And that chocolate, that, I'm a huge chocoholic, and so is my family. And mm-hmm. that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to produce really, really beautiful chocolates like I remember when I was a kid. So
2: what did you do to make that happen?
1: So for me, go, growing up, um, I was always a huge chemistry buff. Mm-hmm. I loved chemistry. Um, And I went to college for chemistry, although I did not graduate in chemistry. That's okay, it happens. (laughs) But um, when I decided to go into chocolate, I literally picked up those books um, filled with diagrams of molecular structures and talking about um, how things bond and read them specifically Mm -hmm. for chocolate to kind of understand how to work with it. So I could understand from a, a base level what I needed to do to produce chocolate. Mm-hmm. And then from there, I, I st- just started experimenting.
2: Um, but you have, when you first started, what year is this? What are we talking about?
1: Oh, this is 20 years ago.
2: Okay. Mm-hmm. So what were the kinds of chocolates you were making then? What was the kind of product you had access to then versus the kind of stuff you're doing yeah,
1: now? Yeah. So originally when I started, I was very much just doing truffles. Okay. All sorts of truffles. And um, and how were I, I had you... a full-time job. This was something okay. I was doing on the side. Right. So, and
2: were you selling them?
1: I was selling them. I was going around. And what I found out is that most gift stores um, are pretty warm, temperature-wise. Yes. So carrying truffles was really something that wasn't going to work out unless I made investments. So mm-hmm. the money from my main job stayed in one account. And the money from chocolate stayed in the other, and I reinvested in it. So what I ended up doing was buying refrigerated coolers. Um, they were nice looking. Um, for people to put in their stores so that they could carry my product. So I smart. literally invested in the ingredients. And then, now this was down in Atlanta at mm-hmm. the time. So when I decided to move here to um, this region... And I said goodbye to all my accounts because I took all my equipment with me. Right. So that when I opened my store on King Street, I literally had all the equipment already purchased. And I opened the store on my own without taking a loan. Wow. Yeah.
2: And was it hard to do? Because, oh. I mean, in King, like small brick and mortars are really difficult. Yes. Especially just a single origin, so to speak, you You know, know, a single concept. What was
1: hard about it was learning all the aspects of just uh, juggling what it takes to run a small business.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: You know, um, people can be great at something, but then when they want to make it a business venture, um, there are... 101 right, there's more another, things you like, have to learn learning and, curve right and the learning curve is really tough so it takes a lot of time away from what you're doing to learn how to actually be a business person at the same time um so that was the hard part of just having to juggle it but the chocolate was never hard i've okay. always enjoyed chocolate i've always had fun
2: well did your product so did what so you started with the truffles mm-hmm. But you evolved over time. You did, yeah. So what, what are the kinds of things you're offering now? And, oh you know, God. did you travel a lot to find the cocoa beans that you wanted to use? Like how how deep did you dive?
1: <laughs> how deep did I dive? So uh, when I first opened the store, it was really all based around bonbons, which is mm-hmm. technically anything that's a bite size. Maybe right. So whether it's a caramel or a cream or a filled jelly or a truffle, it's a bonbon. Um and that's pretty much what the store was, um, as well as some, you know, candied and dried fruits and stuff like that. And then I remember I had a customer come in and said, why don't you make chocolate bars? And honestly, the reason I didn't make chocolate bars is because I just thought they were kind of...
2: Boring? Boring, yes. He makes and the best I I mean, chocolate mean, And I just bars. want to say, for the record, like, talk about, like, such a change in what people are buying. Like, go to... Any store now and there are rows huge, and rows and rows huge, and rows and right, Chocolate rows bars, There's of so chocolate many, bars yes. right?
1: Yes. So I started and I, I put out five flavors of chocolate bars originally. Okay. And they sold like crazy. People loved them. And I was like, oh my God, chocolate bars are, are really selling well. Great gifts. I now make forty everyday chocolate bars and then i add in seasonal flavors chocolate bars are that successful wait, to my business wait 40
2: skews or
1: 40 flavors of chocolate 40 bars 40 flavors of
2: chocolate bars yes. that- oh my god in two sizes wow
1: so alone that one product chocolate bar yes is 40 plus different flavors that i'm producing and okay. on top of that i'm producing Shuffles. so right now for the holidays I have 13 flavors I have two types of caramels I, I eat have them all he's looking cluster. at me well, because so, I, know, I was just gonna
2: say, just so <laughs> you know like I am a chocolate bar buyer I buy chocolate bars because at night after dinner I like a piece of chocolate so I break off oh my no piece of chocolate. I do too the thing is that's how that. I eat my chocolate so at the end of a
1: batch of chocolate there's oh. always a little left in the bowl right so I just scoop that and I set it aside and you know it's just a a little lump over there, right. but I take all those lumps, and I have a little dish, it's a monkey dish, <laughs> and I put all those little pieces of chocolate in there next to my little espresso machine. So basically every morning I have a mocha. Right. And it's whatever flavor leftover chocolate bar is, and I pop like it in there, and I melt it up, like and sure. that's that my works. that's yep. my mocha of the day.
2: I love it. All right, yeah. we have to get into wine, but before we get into wine, I'm going to take a quick break. So this is Nikki Nellis. We are talking about local artisans in the D.C. area, chocolate, cheese, and wine. But that's not local. But it doesn't matter. It's still delicious. We'll be back in just a sec. Nikki Nellis, we're back, Industry Night, with um, me, Nikki Nellis, I was going to say with Foodie and the Beast, but <laughs> he's not a part of the show anymore, so no, he's not here. Um, so we're having such a delicious conversation in studio, and we are eating just gobs of um, magnificent uh, caramel cheese, um, and we just heard about Kingsbury chocolates. Um, all of these are available at the Cheese Steak stores That Jill Erber uh, represents, um, well, owns, actually. But she also brought in Jason because she was like, we cannot have chocolate and cheese without wine. Jill, why don't you tell me a little bit about why? Why Jason was so important to you? Jason is,
3: okay, so I get a little background. So when we opened, again, over 15 years ago now, I didn't carry wine at first. And so, of course, customers were endlessly saying, "Um, why don't you carry wine? I have all this cheese, I don't have any wine. So I had to start carrying wine, like, really fast. So I found a couple of local wine vendors that were had seemingly interesting things and who would return my call because I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I'm this little tiny shop and I don't right. know what I'm doing. And one of them who returned my call was Jason Whiteside. So Jason swooped in like Superman, right? And he mm-hmm. came in and he taught me how to be a wine purveyor. So for someone like myself who enjoyed drinking wine but knew practically nothing about the science, the, the logistics, the mechanics, the merchandising, how to price things, how right. to source things. I knew nothing. And so Jason had his work cut out for him because he didn't just sell me wine, so to speak. He coached me and mentored me. And to this day, 15 years later, is still one of my greatest mentors in this industry. So, Well,
2: on that note, so Jason, how did you get into wine and become such an expert?
0: Uh, 20 years ago, I was a hard-charging pharmaceutical salesman mm. in various parts of the East Coast.
2: Okay, so sales is in your blood.
0: Selling drugs that rhyme with Niagara. Mm-hmm. And I, uh, I had a little crisis of, a midlife crisis, and I moved to St. Martin to You know, Caribbean.
2: you could take Viagra if you're having a midlife
0: crisis. Uh-huh, I, was only, I was only 30. Okay. And, uh, and so I moved to the island of St. Martin for mm. three years. French
2: side or Dutch side?
0: Uh, both. Mm. And on the French side, I was introduced I learned about wine a little bit while I was at hard-charging pharmaceutical rep because we took a lot of physicians out to dinner dinner. right and one of my best friends who's a professor at American University challenged me he got into wine before I did he started to get me to think critically about wine Mm -hmm. really what was in the glass still didn't really get the bug but when I moved to St. Martin wine was part of the culture because we're in France right Right. and so um,
2: just a little injection here my father is a physician this is my brother and his wife. So I know all about the farm reps. But uh, my family went to the French Lab. We went to Grand Casse every year over December. And it's... I it's just, beautiful. I said, well, it's not beautiful right at this moment, but no, yes. I know. It really <clears throat> got
0: walloped with American uh-huh. Irma. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the time, this is 2003 mm-hmm. that I was there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I made, some wine, made some friends who owned a wine shop. And every time I opened a different bottle... Of French wine it was just a new a new gem to me a new experience and I remember distinctly one time uh, a beautiful French woman uh, Marina Cohen who owned a wine store with my friend Sylvan she opened a sauterne for me a dessert wine for Hmm. the first time and she read to me from a French book a description of sauterne. and it was one of the most (laughs) amazing experiences to listen to this beautiful woman talk about this beautiful wine that I'm drinking in the glass that tastes amazing and I thought, there's real power in this glass. Like, wine is more than just something to drink, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so fast forward a, a little bit, and I was sitting at the Sunset Beach Bar, where the next major thing happened to me to get into the wine business. My friend, who was the bartender, Jason Jones, who owns the Red Piano out in Santa Barbara, he comes over to me at the time, and he says, hey, there's a guy at the end of the bar I want you to meet. His name's Tony, and he, uh, he's looking for some adventure. He, He knew I spearfished, and he's like, would you take the guy spearfishing? I'm like, I guess. Who is he again? He goes, he's some chef, some big-time chef from New York or something. I go over and introduce myself. It's Anthony Bourdain.
2: Oh, my goodness. Oh, my uh, God. (laughs) And
0: and I did take him spearfishing. I bet you did. And and a couple times, him and him and his brother, and he used to, he became friends. We used to bowl together. That's so nice. And and in talking to him about wanting to do something more with my life, I was sort of in that in-between spot. He said, if you're going to get into wine, go all the way. And he said, there are wine schools out there that you can get into. And we talked about that. And he said, you should learn the production side. You should learn everything about it. And so I did. So I joined, I enrolled in the Wine and Spirit Education Trust, which is Mm -hmm. one of the top wine schools in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, I eventually moved back to the USA to finish that that wine schooling. I worked two harvests, so I got production experience. I feel like out of the group here, I'm the least talented. I'm not bringing a lot to the table As far as production goes, but
2: but you you have knowledge.
0: But uh, uh, I I thought that was important to get my hands dirty and and make some wine myself, Mm -hmm. and then I went back into my hard charging salesman mode and got into the wine distribution business Mm -hmm. uh, to bring all that together and hopefully bring that knowledge to my customers.
2: So you're at Winebow for people who don't. uh, If we can do a little more education, not just on wine so much, but on the business technicality of what a Winebow is. How it works with somebody like a Jill. Like, how does it affect the layperson? How does what you carry affect somebody who's not, who's just going into a store?
0: Winebow is a a little unique, but really in in the wine business, there's the three-tier system, right? There's the, well, there's really four, there's at least four tiers, but there's a producer. But in America, there's an importer, a wholesaler, and a retailer. We're the wholesaler. We're sort of the unseen middlemen that you wouldn't really know the name Winebow unless you looked at the back of a bottle and saw it was imported by or Mm -hmm. distributed by Winebow. Uh, you, you don't generally see us Wait, very so much. are
2: you both It's mine Bo both.
0: We it are, is, both. Right? We do that's import. What I thought. We do import and distribute.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and so so that's where I can help, Jill. I bring product my my company brings products to Jill and allows her to choose the best ones of them to feature in her store.
2: Okay. And so when you meet somebody like a Jill who 15 years ago was new at this, but you saw the kind of pristine product she was carrying. How did you go about educating her on the kinds of wines that she should carry?
0: Well, first of all, there's nobody quite like a Jill.
2: Oh, <laughs> Aww, that's you so true. You are an true. angel.
0: Uh, but secondly, that's a very good question. I mean, a lot of it's got to be, she's got to believe in the products that she sells. Mm-hmm. And I remember one of the first times I met her, she told, and I asked her what her favorite wine was, because that matters. She told me Neuf de Pop. Well, was, there's
2: nothing wrong with a good chateauneuf de pop. Nothing, nothing ch- at but all. But it was
0: associated to a fantastic memory for her. It was mm-hmm. your honeymoon, right? Mm-hmm. You, you were there on your honeymoon. And that's important, right? That wine can transport you back to that wonderful memory that you have. And so that's where we start our tasting with some chateauneuf de Pops, And then you go maybe back down price-wise to some um, Cote de Rones, which are essentially the same, just a little bit less expensive. They just expensive, don't have the name. A little name. less specific. Right, Sure. Um, and, and And then you and then you start to look at the products you carry. As, what what goes with the cheeses that you like to feature what goes with chocolate wine and chocolate's kind of funny it doesn 't always work mm-hmm. um, they 're two complicated tastes that you really have to uh, to look out for It, it can work wonderfully but it 's not always the best pair no so so it took a lot of tasting we sat down and we we tasted, tasted a lot of wine. Hard,
2: hard work. I know. It sounds like really <laughs> <Exhausting>. difficult, <laughs> difficult yeah. work.
0: And what's, what's really fun about somebody like Jill is that she does care about the producers, even if they're from far away. Mm-hmm. So even if it's a winemaker family from Argentina, she wants to be able to tell that story or even have them in her store to do wine dinners where she features a different group of wines uh, and pairs them with the right foods and cheeses.
2: Well, actually, to that point, I mean, it's kind of like what we're talking about here with everybody in studio. How do you go about finding Virginia winemakers? I mean, there's new winemakers popping up all over the U.S. all the time, right? So how do you go about educating people, educating a gel about, you know, why these wines are worth it?
0: Again, we play the middle ground. We, we, meet, those, we meet those producers, and either we buy into what they're doing or, they, or we don't. Mm-hmm. The ones that we do buy into... We make the introductions, right? Right. That's because because a winemaker, even from Virginia, I mean, I work with a, a young woman named Sarah Walsh who has a, a small family winery called Walsh Family Wines. They don't have a, they they, they can't even come close to distributing themselves. Of course, right? they need that that connection with the purveyors mm-hmm. and social media to do it. And so, for people who are on a slightly larger scale, we make that introduction for them. We can get the products with our trucks and our sales reps. You know. Way more broadly distributed, uh, and then but make that personal connection even from people from South Africa or France or, or, or New Zealand. Do you know what I mean? Like that sharing
2: that story, right? Because like That's Jill, what we do. I totally get what Jill does is because I do it. I like to share people's story. I want people to understand what people do and why they do it. And I think when you walk into a store like Cheese Teak, knowing where that wine is from, everything is so hand selected. Do you know what I mean? You're not just you're not just buying stuff. So. I think knowing those stories are really important and sharing them, but I, how do you, I don't know if you're always able to tell those stories.
0: Well, oftentimes, those producers will actually come in the store with me. They'll come from all over the world, mm-hmm. and we'll bring them right in and let mm-hmm. them do the talking. I'm just the, I'm just the driver at that point. We let them come in with their products, and, and I make the introduction, and then Jill gets to uh, meet them firsthand and hear about their stories.
2: But now you do carry a, a selection of winemakers from all over the world, right? It's not just French.
0: Every wine-producing country. Yes. Okay.
2: But you said you did, um, off-air, you told me that you carried an awful lot of French wines.
0: Yeah, the reason why I was talking about French wine is because uh, I'm concerned about the tariffs. And, and part of this networking that we're all talking about, uh, something that a lot of people don't know, is the, the great lengths that importers, wholesalers, and even, to some degree, the producers... Are going to keep prices low as low as they can and not let people feel the price increases on wine, specifically really French wine. I mean, there's other countries affected, but in a practical sense, it's going to be mostly France mm-hmm. um, so that you can enjoy these wines for the holidays. So, to all the gentle listeners out there, buy your French wines now. Buy French wines now. So,
2: like, especially yeah. champagne. Yeah,
0: yes. Champagne is poised to be a. a wickedly tariffed soon. They're talking about 100% tariffs on champagne within a month and that will make champagne something that you used to be able to afford to drink.
2: That is unbelievable information. That is like gobsmacking. And how does this affect... I mean, Jill, I want to know how that mm-hmm. affects you, but does it affect you as a cheesemaker? The it does. it does. How does that affect you?
4: Because we depend on small shops, you know, such as Jill's, mm-hmm. um, to... Um, to carry not only our cheeses, but um, to carry um, um, French cheeses and Italian cheeses and, and olive oils and wines. That gets people in that in the store mm-hmm. to spend money not only on our things, but also on... It helps the bottom line of an establishment that is selling all of our products. Sure. It's very, um, it, it it it's very important. It, it's not like, you know, everyone's going to say, oh, I'm only going to ma- buy American artisanal right now. I I don't think that's true.
2: I think that that no, you know, I don't think that that's what I mean. My opinion, and there's no education no. behind it. but I, I've known a lot of. But you know of, what I mean? Like I, it, the tariffs aren't about driving American business. Mm-hmm. So, you know, but it's going
4: to hurt American I think it's small gonna, retailers. Right, I, and I've heard this from. From friends in Chicago and New York and Atlanta mm-hmm. that that are all singing the same tune that, you know, this is going to be a difficult, you know, thing to maneuver because of the tariffs.
0: Um, there, w- there will be winners, right? I mean, as an unintended consequence of this, people, if you can't afford champagne anymore, you'll have to look to Cava or Prosecco's or American Sparkly Wines. There's other things mm-hmm. out there. So someone will win, right? Mm-hmm. Because people are going to stop drinking. Did you drinking. see my
2: face when you said Prosecco? I
0: know. Mm-hmm. Why, why did you make that face? <laughs>
2: Because Prosecco has been completely bastardized for the American palate. What used to be a really good sparkling wine is now sweet and um, unappealing. Now, I know there's some really good bubbly coming out of Umbria right now, but you can't find that everywhere. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I used to really enjoy Prosecco. I, I won't drink it. I think something that's really important in this, in
4: this discussion about tariffs is that we have a very special relationship with our mongers With the people who buy our cheeses Mm -hmm. and they don't just buy cheeses from us as virginians they buy cheeses from farmers from all over the world right and at the end of the day that is what they are they are farmers who are making a great product and a and a and a trying to make a living for their family mm-hmm. um and so it's not just about it's going to be american made or you know it, you know w- we're going to stick with america way. it's 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 a very big picture and american cheesemakers feel that just as much as as the european cheesemakers um it's just a very difficult it's a very difficult situation that to navigate it sounds like on it. all on all sides
2: now what about in the chocolate world does this affect you at all
1: with the tariffs, tariffs? Um, does it play with you at all? Not so much because I mean, we're the, what
2: you, your major imports are not coming from, like because don't you have to import your cocoa beans and things of that nature?
1: Yes, but in the sense that I'm um, I'm getting cocoa beans from specific countries, right? And then having the cocoa beans uh, conched and made into chocolate, okay for me. A lot of people don't
2: know what conched means. Do you want to explain that? May I have a
1: little sip, please? (laughs) Um, It's just one of the processes where you're grinding up the beans, and Mm -hmm. it's the last part of it where it really develops the flavor and smooths out the texture. So Uh, My chocolate's considered a grade of chocolate classified as couverture. And couverture is the highest grade of chocolate in the world. Okay. Because it has the highest amount of cocoa fat in it, which is what gives it the great texture. Mm -hmm. And it also doesn't have any granular texture because the conching process goes on for days extra longer than most chocolate goes through. So it's... Very smooth. You don't pick up anything, it just melts in your mouth instantly. Mm-hmm. So um, for me, so then the when you get it, it so how does way. it
2: arrive to you? How does so it's
1: arriving way? to me in what are little uh, like pallets, pallets? Little coins. Mm-hmm. Yes.
2: So, and then you melt them and make it into so. all your But
1: the countries that I get the cocoa from are very specific. So okay. I'm getting from five specific countries. Um, A lot of people who do bean-to-bar, which is from the cocoa bean to the chocolate bar Mm -hmm. aspect of it, um, usually like to highlight the bean from the specific area that they're getting it from. Right. um, Which, um, there's enough of those people. Um, I don't need to kind of go into that. that, It's not of interest. There's a couple chocolates that I do like to do bean-to-bar because they stand out. But in general, I like to blend the chocolate. So, for me... There's five countries in the world I use the beans from that are blended together so that I can create the flavor profile that I want for my chocolate.
2: And so you brought a bunch of chocolates today. Do you want to tell us a little bit about them?
1: I did. So, uh, like I said, I make over 40 bars. So I brought five bars today. Mm -hmm. Two of them are the holiday bars that I'm offering right now. One is the peppermint bark bar. I know that's (laughs) rather... (laughs) Sort of popular in general, but um, so good. It's, a right? fresh, it's a fresh peppermint in the chocolate, and then the peppermint chips are actually soft. They're not the hard ones that you can get, oh. which I think makes a huge difference because you don't have these little shards of hard sugar candy. in your mouth. Mm-hmm. And then the other um, holiday bar is the frankincense with candy ginger and orange peel. Mm-hmm. And what I like about frankincense is that it has the um, aroma of pine, But it has a peppery flavor. Mm. So I think it's beautiful with the candied ginger, which is already peppery, but you get some of the sugar and the orange. It's a beautiful bar. Um, And then
2: what's the shoyu?
1: So the shoyu is um, actually my number one selling bar. Mm. Um, So the almonds, I soak them in a blend of tamari, soy sauce, and sea salt, and then roast them. Mm. Um, And the reason I... uh, named it you was long before I had any marketing sense and realized you should name something what it's called, um, because nobody knows what the word shoyu means. But I had an intern and she was from Hawaii. Okay. So she had introduced me to the the term shoyu because it's a Japanese term basically kind of for soy sauce. <laughs> so um, that's where it comes from. But those rich soy sauce flavors coating the almonds is beautiful with dark chocolate. It is the best-selling bar, it literally outsells every oh, not- other bar two I mean, to it one.
2: delicious. Why so, wouldn't it? So. Just a quick question about chocolate. Do you find more and more people are eating dark chocolate these days?
1: No. So a number of years ago when dark chocolate got a ton of marketing, yeah, dark chocolate sales went up. Okay. But that marketing stopped a couple of years ago, huh. and so did the sales. So the sales of milk and dark chocolate are literally even. That's
2: fascinating. It has not
1: And I know... People probably talk about it still. But for me, that is just not the case. And I'm out there. Um, I mean, no, I, I sell my chocolate to Jill, but I also do direct pop-ups. I'm there every single week meeting with people. I see what's selling and I understand what it is and what flavors mm-hmm. they want. That's why I create certain things because I keep in touch even as a wholesaler mm-hmm. as much as I can directly with my retail client to kind of understand where I'm going. So it's not. It hasn't changed. So this is the second best-selling bar, the Fleur de Sel bar, which is almond toffee and French sea salt and milk chocolate.
2: I mean, it looks beautiful. They're both
1: delicious bars, and they sell like crazy. Well,
2: good. Now, you brought in some gorgeous cheeses today. Can we discuss them? Well, I just brought in a couple of um,
4: um, cheeses. Our cheeses are seasonal. We don't make the same cheeses all year long. These are um, uh, fall and um, late fall cheeses. I bought in a... um, uh, a hard cheese, uh, in traditionally called a toma.
2: Which um, I've eaten half of while a toma here because it, it's so delicious. Toma
4: is just a shape, it's a four pound wheel. Um, it's a, uh, it's sort of um, um, an everyday sort of, um, you know, um, humble cheese. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, we wash it yeah, as it's,
2: it's super mild. Yeah, it's Do you know very mild. Mean? Like that's why mm-hmm. I'm eating it like you would chips. Well, like, it starts out so pretty easy. mild,
4: and cheeses gain complexity as they get older. This mm-hmm. one was made in September, um, late September, um, and so it's going to continue to age and gain complexity. As it ages, we literally wash it with um, hard apple cider from um, a local cider and uh an apricot vinegar brine which is one thing that is very very traditional just you know whatever you have in your local area you use it um and it kind of adds on another layer of complexity and also helps your neighbors um the other is a bloomy rind cheese um uh, very similar in style to um what the italians call robiola uh it's um it's about a month and a half old it uh, it has delicious. that bloomy delicious. rind on it, um, which is uh, has a little um, mushroom overtone to it. It's delicious with champagne, by the way. Um, it is delicious Stylistically, with it's very different. So you see that it's, oh, you yeah. know, but these are both come from... I have to the, be honest. Cause I know you all...
2: both are going to think I'm crazy. I mean, everybody will think I'm crazy. Like, I keep looking at that 80% mm-hmm. dark chocolate. I want that dark chocolate with that cheese. Yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. I just think, like, that would be, like, the bitterness of the chocolate... Mm-hmm. You know what I mean, and the creaminess. Mm-hmm. Like, but I that just,
1: cheese has an earthiness, right? And I put extra virgin olive oil in my eighty percent because oh, the pensy- the bean for this. On yeah, there? so okay. the bean for this bar is forestero, which is the earthiest of the cocoa beans. Mm-hmm. And um, the higher you get in percentage, sort of the the drier the bar becomes. So right. I added extra virgin olive oil to give Brilliant. it some more fat, which is earthy also. So the bar. Texture ends up being really, really smooth, even though it's a high percentage. And it would be a really nice pairing with that it's cheese. Really I, think <laughs> I
2: think we should try. Look at that. I think we should try before we wrap we up. Should. I think we should try. I think
4: one of the things I struggle to explain to people is that you cannot make the same cheese throughout the whole season. Your job as a cheese maker is to channel the right milk into the right cheese at the mm-hmm. right time. And so we make this cheese in the fall and in the winter. And, and we so don't make
2: it in the summer. Right now, for both of you, Where can we find your products other than Cheese Teak, obviously, but where, I mean, are your products available online? How do we find you? Okay.
1: All right. So, yes, uh, my products are available online. I have a retail website. Right. Um, And then I also do sell to the lovely Jill Erber at Uh Cheese Teak. Yes. um, As uh, well as some other um, all small individually owned food and wine businesses. Okay. I'm not in a Whole Foods, Foods or, or like a Total Wine or anything like that. I like to work personally with clients, um, one-on-one, and um, it's important to me okay. um, to have that kind of relationship.
4: Great. Gail? Well, this is a sticky wicket. This mm-hmm. is this is a challenge for us. Um, our cheeses are distributed primarily at farmers' markets in the Charlottesville area. Mm-hmm. Um, we make a very small amount of cheese i'm hoping that we can um, can maybe figure out some distribution in the DC area but um, primarily on the farm and farmers' markets um, we we really are very very small okay. and um, forging those relationships with um, with big with big whole um, like grocery stores and things, that's not for us. It's, it's yeah. not something so that... So is it they're... more
2: like people like Jill yes. at Cheese mm-hmm. Teak or small restaurants, things mm-hmm. of that yes. nature, where they can mm-hmm. feature your cheese? That's
4: correct. Okay, mm-hmm. great.
2: Um, and let's talk a little bit about bow. Take that back. So you help Jill with her wines, but I know that you bring in winemakers and you do lots of other things.
0: We do. Um but for one thing, I'd like to address this Prosecco, because you do bring up a good point. Now, you do bring up a good point. to
3: get back to this. I like
0: your point, and you took the mic away. And that's okay. It's okay. That's okay. It's your show. But uh, there, there's, well, because actually Jill and I had this conversation the other day about lowering sugar in our diets in some mm-hmm. regard, right? Especially in, in things where you don't know it's there. If you choose to eat chocolate, you know what you're getting. But with wine, sometimes sugar can be...
2: Evasive. Really,
0: really, yes. Mm -hmm. There but not known, right? (laughs) Right. So um, there's a style of champagne called ultra-brute or brute nature where there's no sugar added. Mm -hmm. And Prosecco is actually starting to do the same thing. There's Mm -hmm. an example, uh, Bellissima, Christy Brinkley's Prosecco that has zero added. No sugar added. Less than 0.5 grams per Per liter of sugar which is almost undetectable so so it's out there and there, there's a rebound to the old way of prosecco so okay. it's not all confected sweet
2: well thank you for that <laughs> education welcome. i You're appreciate welcome. that i certainly don't want to be putting out false information no. it's just a personal a personal observation over sure. the years because i used to really drink prosecco like 15 years ago and now i don't
0: yeah, in sparkling wines, just, there is often a lot of added sugar, and, and now Laurent Perrier makes a Brut Nature and an Ultra Brut. There's two different kinds where they have no added sugar at all, and I think that's important to know that those products are available in stores with knowledgeable wine people like Jill, mm-hmm. uh, that, that you can get those, still enjoy sparkling wine and not have the hidden sneaky sugar that's there.
2: So, Jill, I have yes. just a couple mm-hmm. of minutes left for the show, um, and this has just been so interesting and so fabulous. Great. How is it that you go about finding like the people here today right i mean i know jason called you back and you were lucky to forge a relationship (laughs) but how you know given the kind of store you have and the kinds of offerings that you have how do you go about curating the things that you're offering to people
3: Well, the way that I curate is I think, what is the story behind this product? Whether it's um, one of Gail's cheeses or one of Rob's chocolates or one of Jason's uh, wines, it's always about how can I communicate to our guests why they should give a hoot about this product what can they do when they get home to tell their friends and family oh my god you guys I just got this wine wait till you hear about this winemaker wait till you hear about this chocolate maker who mm-hmm. actually grew up on a maple sugar farm like right. who does that so my ability to well you, somebody who grew I mean up on a maple sugar way. farm right <laughs> he's the only person I've ever met I tell everybody I know I'm like
2: he has maple sugar in but his I feel veins. like there should be maple sugar like in your chocolate.
1: Of course he does. Okay, of course he has one.
2: Okay, guys, just making yes. sure that
1: that's there. Um.
3: So, so I love to be able to learn a story and communicate a story because otherwise it's just something we're chewing on, right? right. Um, you've got to be able to stimulate your soul at the same time. And I think there's too many products out there that are so, you know, one of the blessings of, of, of things being so widely available is you can find whatever you want. Um, but on the downside, you can find whatever you want, right? So so there's got to be some value to um, to the spirit of
2: something. And, mm-hmm. and and
3: what sort of other story is it telling other well, than what actually, it tastes like? Well, actually,
2: to me... I think, you know, there's so much um, push these days to not go into the store, right? We'll deliver, we'll deliver, yes. we'll deliver, all the stores, right? Mm. Even, uh, you know, the Targets, the Whole Foods, whatever, mm-hmm. Safeway, whatever. We'll meet whatever. you in the parking lot with right. your stuff. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. Don't come in. Nope. Which to me, uh, for the life of me, I can't figure that out. First of all, how am I going to know what's new if I don't get my tushy in there? Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's such a it's such an antithesis to how I do things right. that I don't even understand the marketing thought process. Like I don't want to just buy what I always buy. I want to be, I want to up my bill and buy more right. of things. Cause I want to taste them. I want to try them. And I want to be educated on those products. But they're really, it's fascinating to me that the the bigger stores are really looking to push people out. Right. And we're, we're doing the opposite. What we are always talking about. In fact,
3: Jason and I literally two days ago, were talking about this very thing of um, how can we get people to come into the store more? Um, so this is how we structure our entire business is about building an experience for people when they come in. They're not just coming in because they can get cheeses, frankly, almost anywhere. They can get pretty decent cheese know, at lots have a of ton different of programming. places. It's programming. But it's all about coming in and learning something and walking away, yeah, with some cheese and some wine and some chocolate in your bag, but walking away with okay, I'm this gonna reword, wonderful I'm story. I'm going to reword that for you. Please. Okay.
2: Yes, you can come in yes, and get some fabulous in. wine fabulous and some, wine. some gorgeous wine. local cheese and yes. incredible chocolates. Right. But go ahead. But
3: <laughs> Yes, what she said. Um, but, but unless you have the story to go along with it, it doesn't have the same impact. And so we're trying to always learn the story. I mean, Rob and I have been teaching cheese and chocolate classes together for 15 years. Um, Jason has come in and taught wine classes with me for 15 years. Um, And I only can hope and pray that Gail one day will come (laughs) and teach a cheese class with me in the shop. Um, But for me, it's all about teaching people the wondrous things that are out there and and the people that are making them. And I think that is really where uh, the value comes from. And so, yes, if you don't come into my store, you're not going to it, our people and learn about it. So, okay. Tell everybody where they can find Cheese Teak. Cheese Teak has three locations. One in Alexandria, Virginia, one in Arlington, Virginia, and one in Fairfax. And we are online at
2: cheeseteak.com. Excellent. Okay. Jason, where can we find you? At Cheese Teak. Yeah, you find me only. at Cheese Teak, Jason's true. at Cheese Teak. You can find him only. there. Kingsbury Chocolates.
1: You can uh, find me at kingsburychocolates.com I and cheese tea cheese teak. Like cheese tea And I do pop-ups every now and then. so check my website for that.
2: All right well, and please send that info to me because we post that stuff on the list oh, Okay, .com, okay? and Gail. We're at caramontfarm.com. Follow us on Facebook,
4: Caramont Farm, also on Instagram. Excellent. Come to the farm, see what we
2: do. Oh, right, because we can snuggle with the goats. Yeah, sure I can't can. believe we didn't even get into that. It's how uh, the show goes yes. so fast. So I want to thank all my guests for joining me in studio today, bringing all these delicious treats and really having a good conversation about the kind of work they're doing out there. I want to thank you, too, for uh, joining us today. This is Nikki Nellis. Follow me at NYCCINELLIS. On Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Hear me live on 1500 on Sundays on Foodie and the Beast. And of course, check out the list, are you on it? Dot com. Thank you again for joining me today. Everybody have a delicious week. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Our pleasure.
0: Thanks for listening to this program on Full Service Radio, broadcasting and recording from the Line Hotel in Adams Morgan, Washington, D.C. Full Service Radio programming can be accessed live and archived on fullserviceradio.org. Our talk programming is available
1: on most podcast apps like iTunes and Stitcher, and our DJ sets are available on
0: mixcloud.com slash fullserviceradio. Full Service Radio features over 30 weekly shows and over 50 local hosts covering every topic imaginable. If you want to be a guest or get involved, email us at info at fullserviceradio.org. Follow us on Twitter at FullServiceRDO, on Instagram and Facebook at FullServiceRadio. Thanks for listening.